2: That's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed today's show, boy, oh boy, did you miss a lot. You missed a conversation with none other than Canada's own Eugene Levy. Yes, and
3: after we were done speaking with Earl Camembert, we spoke to uh, uh, an author who's written a book about David Bowie in the wake of the tragic passing of the rock music icon. Listen to us weekday mornings, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger, it's Rob, two boys living the Alberta dream. Anytime now, Alberta dream, anytime now. Um, we are trying to make a connection here with Eugene Levy, who is the star of many, 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 many TV programs, including a lot of episodes of SCTV, but also Schitt's Creek, which is back on uh, CBC, I guess, uh, beginning tomorrow. tomorrow. Night. Yeah, yeah, tomorrow night. Season two. Um, oh, there he is. Let's just dive right in. He doesn't need an introduction or a preamble. Eugene Levy, for crying out loud.
2: Well, my goodness, we could go on and on. It would be a very lengthy introduction if we wanted it to be, but um, as you say.
3: All right, the man who should be on the uh, $20 bill,
2: Eugene Levy, joins us now. Welcome to the program, Eugene.
3: <laughs> How are you? We're, we're splendid. No, we're great. It's great to have you here.
1: Good. Nice to be had.
3: <laughs> let's, uh, look, Rob and I were trying to figure out what the best strategy for the Eugene Levy interview is going to be, and we determined let's talk about Schitt's Creek. Uh, and the fact it's back on CBC tomorrow, the success of the program, and then it'll totally veer off into, like, the history of comedy with Eugene Levy. Is that
2: okay with you?
1: Wow. Let's go.
2: <laughs> well, season I two. I like
1: this ride. <laughs> season
2: two. All right. So season two kicks off tomorrow night.
1: Correct. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, 9 o'clock, CBC. That's the plug. And very exciting.
2: Well, it is obviously, and and you look. I mean, people love this show. This is getting a critical acclaim. It's building quite a following. Obviously, you know, when when it first debuted and when people first heard about the show, a lot of people got hung up on the name, right? Yeah. What's the story behind the name of the show?
1: Well, we knew that was going to happen. Number one, the the story behind the, the story behind the name really was. Uh, it seemed like the most appropriate name. For the show. And the fact <laughs> is that the name, uh, S-C-H-I-T-T is a legitimate name. Um, and when Dan and I, uh, were coming up with, with the concept for the show and the idea that this family that loses everything, uh, that bought a town in their heyday as a joke and the fact that they end up in the town, the idea of Shit's Creek being the name of the town, seemed like the most appropriate name for the show. So we kind of anticipated a little trouble that it could be a bit of a bumpy ride uh, trying to launch a show with this name. But the fact is, and the big biggest selling point for us, for CBC, certainly was the fact that, you know, it is a real surname. Right. and. You know, there's no reason in the world that you should not be able to call a show that or show the name of the show on the air uh, because it is somebody's name.
3: Yeah, I think that – I can't remember if our radio station had trouble playing the commercial or not and then well, came to the same determination. Yeah, no, I but, yeah. think
1: radio <laughs> definitely had a problem because, you, uh, see, right? you know, we had heard we had heard from the beginning that it was going to be a major problem on radio, and quite honestly – even when we were out plugging the show in the beginning, uh, going on, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Fallon or the Seth Meyers show, whatever, that the networks, could, they would allow us to say the name of the show, but only if we held up a card where the audience could see what the spelling of it was. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now, oddly enough, um, the name of the show is just the name of the show. When people talk about Schitt's Creek, they're really talking about just the name of the show and we really expected that to happen that after the titillation factor kind of wore off um, that people would just accept that this is the name of the show and that's what it is
2: how did you decide where Schitt's Creek was going to be it's uh, it, it's good What is it called? it's in it's in Ontario where you guys shoot right
1: uh, where we shoot is in uh, yes yeah, good well here's another name Goodwood Goodwood <laughs> that's, you know, yeah it's a good um Ontario um, which is uh which is where uh, shit's creek is and uh, we shoot kind of in, in in smaller towns around Toronto
3: um Eugene, can can I ask you the the, the family business question here? Because I mean, it's it's yeah. apparent to anybody who watches the show that it's it's a Levy family production, uh, pretty much. But what's the engine though? Was it was it uh, your son's idea? Was it, uh, was it well, your my
1: idea? Son, yeah, my son Dan uh, c- uh, came to me now. It's almost it's over three years ago, um, and asked me if I wanted to work on a, you know, on a. Kind of a TV idea that he had, and I, of course, as a dad, said, yes, I would love to do that. And, uh, he, you know, the reason he came to me, um, um, at the time, I, I didn't know this, but after the fact is that, you know, he, he really loved the sensibility of the uh, films that Chris guest and I had uh, done and kind of was looking to kind of have the same sensibility in, in, uh, in this idea, but we started working on it and, you know, I thought it was a nice kind of father son project. And, and, you know, my thing was, let's see how far we can take it. And, you know, we got a pilot made, um, in Los Angeles, and and then we started kind of taking it around, and CBC was extremely interested.
3: How much of that working relationship, though, is like master pupil, like, you know, the the Mr. Miyagi with Danielson? Yeah,
1: you know, oddly enough, um, and that's a good point, oddly enough, my, my thing kind of in the beginning, in the back of my head, was exactly that. You know, I thought it was master pupil. I thought I was like the mentor who really has to guide this young lad through the, uh, you know, the pitfalls of comedy. What's right, what's wrong, what's funny, what you gotta be careful of, what you gotta be saying. And, you know, he was so far ahead of the curve when, as soon as we started working on this, that he was taking me by surprise going, wow, I knew he was funny. I, I was, I, I, you know, I watched him for five years on MTV here in Canada. He was great on camera doing a live show, um, which is tough to do, but all the comedy he was doing on that show was also really funny. But, you know, I thought a half hour weekly comedy show, um, you know, on a major network is is a whole different kind of animal. But he was he was so um, brilliant at doing what he did that, you know, the whole, uh, you know, uh, teacher-pupil thing kind of disappeared very quickly.
2: Hmm. Now talk about how then it, it came to be that Catherine O'Hara became a part of this, this production because it's just so perfect to see you and, and Catherine O'Hara working together uh obviously you two go way, way back. So what yeah. what's what's the story there?
1: Well, Catherine was our first choice. I uh she usually is the first choice. <laughs> if uh there's a, a female role in anything that you you know, Catherine's the first person you go to and you know, we'd we'd uh e- even after S C T V we had done quite a few things together, um uh um and it's just i i don't know she's just she's so brilliant she's so uh, great she's so funny and so just and so sweet it's it's always just kind of a joyous experience to do anything with uh, um with Catherine O'Hara so she was our first choice and and the toughest thing for us was would she commit to doing a television series um, because that was the toughest thing it's you know she's very particular about what she does and um, her family is very important to her and she usually doesn't want to be involved in long term affairs but she did say yes and and um, and uh, and she's loving the experience of doing the show and she's created a character that is just such a memorable character will be such a memorable character it's it's an hysterical character, you know, and and it's just it's it's always fun. And there's a comfort factor working with Catherine, too, that that just makes it just makes the experience of, of doing the show so easy, you know, with her.
3: Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that from other uh, from other actors and communities who work together, you know, on significant projects in the past. But I mean, do you kind of get flashbacks when you're doing a, a Schitt's Creek episode with her? Do you feel like you know, it's kind of SCTV does <laughs> again?
1: I, I well, you know, I always think back, you know, there's a lot, there, there's kind of weird things going through my head, now that you mention it, uh, when I'm doing this show, on the one hand, uh, being on the set with Catherine every day, is I always kind of have these little flashes going off, going, boy, it's been a long time <laughs> that I've been working with Catherine, it just, uh, you know, it feels like yesterday, we're on, we're, we're back doing SCTV, you know, I get that familiar feeling, and, and and on the other side, I'm looking at my two kids, saying, "I can't believe my kids are now working in a scene with Catherine yes. O'Hara, and holding their own very well." Um, um, so all these little sparks are going off in my brain while we're doing the show, and uh, and they're really they're good sparks, you know, if they're good feeling sparks.
2: Because the two of you joined SCTV right around the same time, wasn't it?
1: Well, yeah, around the same time. I think Catherine came in. Um, Catherine, uh, I I joined uh, Second City in 1973. Catherine uh, started working in the Second City uh, theater as a waitress. Um, Originally, I believe, she worked in the coat room. Um, at the first Second City in Toronto, and then she kind of uh, um, auditioned for the show. And I remember at the time thinking, ooh, she might be a little young, but she's very talented. And uh, Gilda Radner, uh, who was in our company back then, when Gilda was leaving Second City, it was Catherine who came in to take her place. Um, and Catherine was maybe only twenty at the time, um, but she was just amazingly funny. Um, so uh, that's been it. It's been you know, it's been it's been a long haul, and then going right into SCTV.
3: Yeah, you know, Eugene, we got to take a commercial break here. Yeah, and the real commercials, not like the commercials that you played on SCTV. Which fooled me <laughs> as a young kid. But can we, 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 when we come back from this break, can we talk a bit more you about SCTV? You got it. Okay, brilliant. Eugene Levy is our guest. Um, they used to run. Okay, this is what happened. I would watch SCTV on channel 13 with my brother, and I'm five years younger than my brother, and I would kind of laugh when he laughed. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I want to fit in with my my big brother. But SCTV would run promos for shows. And that they were the bit. That was the bit. It was just like, imagine if this show existed. So you'd get this minute-long thing, and then it would say, Thursday night at 9 on SCTV. I would go to the TV <laughs> on Thursday and watch that channel, and it was like homework hotline or something. It was not what they promised. Well, I'll tell you, because
2: we got a text here already about Earl Camembert. Oh, yeah. But we've also got one about Stifler's mom. And so that really runs the gamut of what's been obviously an amazing career and still going for Canadian comedy legend Eugene Levy. We're back with more right after this.
3: David Bowie for you. Nice you. Nice you. Oh, rebel, rebel. Uh, David Bowie passed away tragically. We're talking about uh, funny things with Eugene Levy. I tried to make that segue as awkward as possible. I didn't know how to do it. Good job. Thank <laughs> you, yes. uh, Eugene Levy, uh, okay.
2: Season two, Schitt's Creek, tomorrow night on CBC. Obviously, Eugene Levy, one of the stars and, and creators of this, this hit program, but... Uh, so much to talk about, so much to talk We wanted to talk a bit about SCTV. Now, for me, Roger, as, as an Edmonton kid, there, there's that Edmonton connection. Eugene, how how many years were SCTV in, in Edmonton?
1: Uh, I think we were there uh, three years.
2: And how did it come um, to be? They, I think they...
1: 79, maybe 79, 79, 80 was the first year, and then it was... Uh, 81, 82, uh, yeah, around
2: 79, to 83. Okay, now you're from Hamilton, so Edmonton wouldn't have seemed like a, a big adjustment, obviously, but, but how was how it that you, the show came to be in Edmonton in the first place?
1: Well, uh, you know, the show, uh, we ran into some money problems. I say we, it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> but the show ran into some money problems uh, here <clears throat> on the uh, in Toronto, and uh, the and then the show kind of dis- and then the show kind of disbanded. So we thought, well, that was a good run. And then everybody kind of uh, you know split up. And then we uh, heard that the uh, that somebody in in Edmonton, Doctor Allard, Doctor Charles Allard, yeah. was willing to uh, put money into the show, but we had to shoot the show out of his studio in Edmonton. And uh, and we said, okay, you know, that's great. And when we got to Edmonton, we found that we were shooting in this uh, studio, ITV, which was a small studio. It actually seemed smaller than the uh, global studios that we were shooting at here in Toronto, which were also kind of small. And we thought, oh, boy, this is... <laughs> what are we getting ourselves into? And the production... That we got out of that studio ITV was so fantastic. Uh, we had never had production that good in Toronto. The, from the sets to the lighting to, uh, the director to you know, all the personnel. Um, the, the look of the show really, really shot right up when we went to Edmonton. And quite honestly, when we, when we got into our 90-minute show, when our show went on NBC, uh, in a 90-minute version, um, the, the best shows we ever did in the run of SCTV uh, came out of Edmonton, and that's just a fact.
3: You know, they still got like a, 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 almost a museum of SCTV in the yeah. basement of, of those studios, which are now uh, there, right? yeah owned by Global. Um, I got to have a tour of it, and it's interesting. All the posters up on the wall, and, and even there's a lot of the, uh, the you know some employees that were that have, you know are still there that'll tell stories about you know this is where they shot this, or I remember this happening. Well, you know,
1: the funny the funny thing is that when we were there, because there wasn't. Because because there wasn't a lot to do in in a sense back then. I mean, even when you had a day off, um, we we actually ended up just kind of uh, you know hanging out in each other's kind of hotel rooms, and we we always ended up um, you know brainstorming. Um, so the creative process on, on uh, during the run of that show in Edmonton was always kind of active. Um, and, uh, it's, it it was, it was a, it was really creatively percolating, you know, back then. And, you know, the shows, it is true. The, uh, the best shows we ever did were the, uh, uh, the years we were there, you know, because there just seemed to be very few kind of distractions and, uh, it was just, uh, I don't know, it all, it all seemed to work.
3: So SCTV was obviously like brilliantly known for its characters, the characters that you guys uh, put on, under uh, on that show. What is, in your opinion, the the most underappreciated or uh, underrated character that you yourself uh, devised on that program?
1: The most underrated character. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm asking
3: it because I'm like, surely there's something that you thought this is just the greatest thing, and it, like somebody missed it, and it, <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, in, I, I, I honestly I'm trying to think an underrated character. If the character actually, if I thought a character was underrated, that character was only done once. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I remember writing uh, this uh, this thing called Days of the Week, which was a kind of a soap opera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I wrote a character for myself, uh, Doctor Sabian. <clears throat> who worked with John Candy's character, who was Dr. William Wainwright on that show. And um, it it became... Uh, I, I was almost like Dr. Wainwright's straight man. Um, it, it was a character that was uh, really so... looked very much like I did back then. Um, and, you know, as a character actor, we loved... To put on wigs and mustaches and, you know, hats, anything that kind of made us look like we didn't actually look like. But this one character was kind of exactly the way I looked at the time. And I realized I was too insecure <laughs> to be playing this character without anything to hide behind, uh, in terms of makeup. So I, uh, and I was working with John, who was so funny. As his character, dr william wainwright um that i I literally just kind of became a straight man to him, and then eventually started writing myself out of the soap opera because I felt that character couldn't possibly compete with the other characters in the soap right. um, but uh I, I don't think there's a character that I ever thought was kind of, you know, underrated. There were characters on the show that I loved doing that were only there once. We did a show called Russian Show, where we kind of tap into a Russian you know, satellite feed, <laughs> uh, of Russian programming. And I remember, uh, playing a little part on a Russian game show called Upo Scrabblenik. Um, that I believe Rick, uh, Dave, either Dave Thomas or Rick Moranis was hosting. I think it was Rick Moranis. Um, and I just played a Russian contestant on that show who, who was just so intense, had the intensity of, you know, kind of, you know, Brezhnev or something. It just, it was, uh, and I loved. (laughs) <laughs> that little character and doing that on the show, and every time I see it, I kind of look at it and go, "Wow, that to me is funny." But I think I, I, whether anybody else would look at it and say, "Wow, well, I got to see that again," right? I don't know. Yeah. But
2: hey, by the way, a lot of people are sending us texts, but I wanted to read this one to you, Eugene. It says, "I used to be a waiter at the Corkscrew Restaurant. The crew used to come over for for eats and beverages." Do you remember a, a Corkscrew I remember Restaurant? Corkscrew. Yeah, yes. <laughs>
1: That's, I remember
3: the corkscrew. Was perfect. that
1: in a hotel?
3: I don't know. I'm that, not even sure where that is, yeah, and you, I'm from Edmonton. You'd huh? have the answer to that one before we would. <laughs> Man, Eugene, wow! we always run out of time in these interviews, and, and uh, we'd love to keep you for longer, but we expect you've got a busy schedule today.
1: Well, I always had a soft spot. I, I always have a soft spot for Edmonton, and, uh, uh, you know, we had some great, great... Great years there, and uh, I have a feeling there probably SCTV would not have been what it what it is if we had not spent a few years in Edmonton.
2: Beauty. All right, well, season two of uh, Schitt's Creek uh, is uh, debuting tomorrow night on CBC. And, and by the way, I understand you got two movies coming out this year, and, and both are sequels. Uh,
1: what's the second
2: one? Well, we got the. Uh, you're in the Goon sequel, is that right? No, I'm not. Well, then why is that listed on your your page here? That's weird. No, the Goon sequel. No, no, no. I'm not in Goon. Now, too. are you in the uh, Finding Nemo sequel, though? I'm in the
1: Finding Nemo sequel.
2: And you are the voice of yeah. Dory's father, correct?
1: Yes, Finding Dory. Yes, I uh, play Dory's huge. father uh, opposite uh, Diane Keaton, plays Dory's mother.
3: Well, I hope, that, um, I hope that movie manages to bring in a paycheck or two. The first one was relatively <laughs> successful.
1: Well, it's always nice to see yourself as a fish with eyebrows. <laughs> there you go.
3: Right, Eugene Levy, thanks so much for your time today. Much appreciated. My sir. pleasure, guys. All right, best of luck. That's uh, Eugene Levy <sighs> there you go. Uh, of Callus Movies, American it says right Pie. right
2: here, Goon, Last of the Enforcers. People remember the movie Goon. Yeah, it was a great show. That is a
3: very underrated movie, very good movie.
2: It says right here, Eugene Levy as, as Dr. Glatt. Interesting. I wonder if he's uh, playing coy, or maybe he forgets doing it, or maybe this, maybe he's not in it. I don't know, but yeah, he's going to be in the Finding Nemo sequel. Uh, so now a bunch of kids are going to know who he is. Of course, you know, young people know him from the American Pie movies. This guy's been going since the early 70s. It's crazy. And consistently, consistently,
3: very, very funny, man. Uh, hey, we're, look, we're late for a break. We're right up against the news to 1130. We're going to open the phones after 1130 and talk about, well, pretty much whatever you want. We've got a few topics to throw out there, though. It's Kincaid and Breaking Ridge on News Talk 770. Hi, welcome back. Last hour of the show. Normally, we'd have 30 minutes left. But no, no, not today. Somebody's got to take a holiday.
2: Mm. That's Daniel. Oh,
3: Justin. Oh, no. Oh, Daniel. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel's off this week, so uh, Andrew Laden's going to be sitting in. Uh, he's going to be on one to three. Yeah. Here's a question that just popped in my mind. Is Canada a better place when Trudeau is on holidays? decide <laughs> hey by the way and i like this text yeah. um just a, a quick note on that: get over it people he's the prime minister of our country and should be allowed to travel with his family full disclosure i didn't vote for him and i think he's the worst thing to happen to canada <laughs> since his dad <laughs> <laughs> All right.
3: well the, said sir the worst thing to happen to canada is, <laughs> see now that's a list i want itemized i want the top 15 worst things to happen to canada since pierre elliot trudeau left office
2: Well, Domino's Pizza would have to be on that list, right?
3: I think it's very high up on the list by, uh, if you ask residents of Inglewood.
2: We'll talk about that later in the hour. People in Inglewood, and I get that they love their neighborhood, appreciate their neighborhood, want to maintain the character of their neighborhood, but they're becoming snobs in the process.
3: Uh, the answer is yes. No, I don't, we'll, we'll explore that at 1230. Let's explore uh, the, the career, the life of David Bowie uh, with our next guest, who is Dr. Nicholas Greco, uh, Associate Professor of Communications and Media at Providence University College, and has also authored a book about uh, the man himself. David
2: Bowie in Darkness, uh, it's called. Nicholas, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I, I'm assuming you, like like a lot of people, just kind of reeling from from this news today.
0: Yeah, you know, this morning I sort of fell out of bed and and saw that my, you know, messages were lighting up on my iPad and sort of went downstairs and was like, what what has happened? And saw the news that David Bowie had died. And sure, I you know, I never knew him personally or anything, but like many other fans who invest a lot of their life in uh, these musicians, it becomes a big shock when someone certainly of the stature of Bowie passes on. Can you
3: kind of take us back to the the genesis when he sort of burst onto the scene? Who was he appealing to?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. I think he appealed to a certain group of fans that didn't seem to find um, uh, find anything uh, similar at the time. I mean, we're talking about uh, someone who appeared on the scene first couple of albums, he was playing a lot of folk type music. I mean, not not folksy in sort of the way we might think of it today, but certainly, you know, lots of uh, singer-songwriter type stuff and so forth. But But he had something different than I think a lot of the other singers had. And then suddenly this burst of creativity with Ziggy Stardust, which came around quite early in his career, I think it's his second or third album, where suddenly he's this very different figure on the scene Something that people would not have seen before, and that becomes something I think that uh, caused a lot of people to really wonder who this person was and what uh, what he was bringing to them, and uh, per, uh, certainly a very compelling figure at that point in his career.
2: Yeah, I think to to a lot of people, Ziggy Stardust sort of seems like the beginning of the David Bowie story. But as he said, I mean, he'd he'd been you know working at it for a while. I think he'd even that was like his fourth or fifth album, wasn't it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it could be. You know, he started in 1966, and I think Ziggy Stardust shows up in 72 or 73, so he'd already been doing some work. Um, he, he, makes, uh, he makes an impact with Ziggy Stardust. People seem to to be drawn to that particular character, and I think it's a combination of a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, he was certainly a very good show, uh, showman. He, he was able to perform uh, in ways that perhaps some of his colleagues at the time weren't. Uh, perhaps they weren't as compelling. But, you know, he was just so creative. And I think that presentation of this enigmatic figure, this alien from space, I think, made a lot of people take notice of him.
3: Yeah, I've, I always sort of felt afraid of David Bowie as a little kid, right? right? Yeah. And, and because of just because of what he looked like. I mean, he, sure. he had the, the, these uh, outlandish costumes. Yeah. And the uh-huh. uh, the hair was always wild and sometimes right. terrifying to me, and the face makeup and stuff. Yeah, is, yeah. He, is he sort of some? Where does he fit into the? And pardon me for saying this. I don't mean any offense, but where does he fit into the glam rock pantheon?
0: Well, he's one of the. He's considered one of the uh, sort of one of the founders of glam rock, uh, and so you're right in sort of identifying him there. He's sort of one of the ones that brought it forward to the forefront of the music scene and said, you know, this is this is something. Uh, this is something cool. This is something that you should be listening to and paying attention to. Uh, I'm with you, though. Uh, I mean, I was afraid of him, too, as a young person. I didn't know what this stuff was. and yeah. In fact, I didn't listen to him at all until much later. I mean, my first David Bowie album that I bought was 1993. So I was, you know, I kept away from his early stuff. Once, once, you know, I was much older in 93, and so then I had this whole back catalog to, to explore. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get into him until much later, because I thought he was unsafe. Little did I know that he was still unsafe later on, but uh, you know, uh,
2: perhaps he was a little
0: more subtle about it.
2: Well, and and he just you know he he was who he wanted to be, right? Yeah. And he, he didn't conform to to any kind of preconceived notions or, or stereotypes about you know what an artist should be. And, right. and so there was there was that sense of you don't want to call it bravery, but just you know that, that he had that courage to say you know what, this is what I'm going to do, and I know no one's done it before, but you know I'm, I'm going to sort of chart my own my own course here.
0: Yeah, and he seems to be able to do that, particularly after the 1980s when he had these huge radio hits, right? And you know, he, he basically made a fortune with Let's Dance, for instance, which was a big, you know, huge mainstream success. And people thought, well, now he's just selling out to com- to commercialism or whatever. But it also, you know, his fame and his fortune allowed him then to do whatever he really wanted. Once that was uh, once that was over, he was able to do uh, everything he did after 1988. Uh, stuff that he uh, maybe wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have done earlier than that, but because he was set financially, he could do whatever he wanted. Did did
3: Labyrinth play a big kind of pivotal role in that at all?
0: I think that was part of his uh, part of his fame in the '80s. Labyrinth was one of those things that he had the opportunity to participate in. I think it was part of that. Uh, grand um, celebrity, if you will, that he had in the in the '80s. Uh, suddenly, he's uh, he's a uh, what was he? The Goblin King, I think, mm-hmm. in that movie. And so we have yet another side of the David Bowie persona for for, for us to, com- to 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 be compelled to. Um, so I think lots of people, lots of children, certainly young people, uh, attach themselves onto this uh, this this fellow who who just looks so otherworldly. Just another guise that uh, that he put himself in.
3: Yeah, I made it through that movie by having a crush on Jennifer Connolly, <laughs> which still we lingers all, today. Yeah, yeah it still
2: lingers. I can understand that. Now, in terms though, of, of how he approached his own masculinity, right, yeah. and, and certainly I think a lot of people are focusing on that side of him, how we, again, getting to those, those stereotypes and how he sure. sort of blew through those and just kind of redefined what it meant to be that, that kind of a figure.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's, and that's maybe why Ziggy Stardust was so compelling to a certain group of people. It was suddenly an, uh, it was an example of masculinity that didn't seem to fit into what we knew before that. Suddenly you've got a, uh, a man. He's obviously a man, but he's wearing makeup and his hair is done up and, and so forth. But this sort of thing continues throughout his career. You know, in the 80s and even later on as he, as he gets a little older, he becomes a kind of icon of fashion, you know, somebody that, that is just so, um, so cool, we need to dress like Bowie. I mean, he's an arbiter of taste, almost. Um, you know, this is, the, this is the kind of stuff you can still be a man or be very masculine and be all of these things. He certainly makes problematic some of these stereotypes, some of the masculine stereotypes that we hold as a society and as a culture. And so in that way, I think he did quite a bit for um, for society to sort of push and challenge that there are different ways to present ourselves to the
2: world.
3: Yeah, I think one of the odd things I notice, you know, particularly in retrospect, is that some of the most uh, maybe avant-garde, like runway model type, supermodel types of the '80s. Uh, did in fact mimic his style too and, sure. and get, you know, outrageous with the hair and the makeup and stuff like that. So it's almost as though while he was pushing this boundary of, of masculinity, it was femininity that adopted it or accepted it. Oh, more for way, sure. Right? Yeah, I,
0: yeah. I think you're right. I think it just, it really just makes problematic some of the, some of the sort of dichotomies that we set up about masculine and feminine. He, he sort of sat in the middle. It's not that he negated any of these. He didn't erase the notion of masculinity, but he certainly makes it problematic and shows us perhaps that there's is another way to go about presenting ourselves and that was probably a very compelling model for many people who didn't seem to fit into the sort of strict strict categories that we might have or as, as society might have here was another way to go
3: you know some of the the bigger bands uh that came out of america in the 80s um we would have probably taken a few cues out of out of David Bowie as far as presentation goes not maybe not necessarily musically but do we see you know the 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 thread of David Bowie running through the tapestry of bands like Bon Jovi and Poison and Van Halen and you know a lot and Rat like a lot of the hair metal bands that came out of LA
0: Yeah I think so isn't it interesting that a lot of those hair bands uh you know you might look back at them and say these are the pinnacle of masculine music right you know right. the, the yeah. idea of exactly. sort of uh you know this rock music that is manly rock music there's another term for it that some scholars use but I won't use it on the air <laughs> uh, but, but uh, there there is this idea and I think that they they uh, play with that a little bit because yeah perhaps they were looking at David Bowie but there's this pr- presentation of themselves really made up like women uh, uh but this is sort of the manliest of music it's that's just a very interesting problem if you will uh and uh you know maybe they were doing something uh because Bowie did it first, and so they were able to do that. Uh, You know, we don't hear much within, at least in in academic circles, we don't hear much about the trailblazing that a lot of the hair metal or glam metal bands uh, made, but I I think we can't discount that either.
2: You know, I think to a lot of people, and when when they think of David Bowie, they'll think of Ziggy Stardust and the 70s David Bowie or the new wave, 80s David Bowie, but I know you've written a lot about um, you know, the 90s David Bowie and, and yeah. his 95 album. So, where did his career go? How did he remain relevant once his career got into, you know, into the 90s?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, in 1995, when he did his outside album, he, he, uh, he made a decision to try to find uh, someone that he could sort of collaborate with to keep him relevant. And, and some of the people who write about this, David Buckley is one guy. A few other uh, writers that write about this, they they suggest that you know he sent out a, a marketing campaign, and uh, I'm sorry, a marketing survey to you know find out what people thought about him and then how he could create recreate his image. That's quite possible that he did all of that, but on the public side of things, he basically he went on tour with Nine Inch Nails and this is a sort of a a radical change of his audience you know, the the Bowie audience and the Nine Inch Nails audience really were not the same people at the time Um, but he somehow got that audience uh, to come to his shows and sure there was a lot of controversy some Bowie fans wouldn't come in until late so that they'd miss the Nine Inch Nails stuff and the Nails fans would leave before Bowie started but I think that's one of the ways that he, became, that he sort of kept his relevance up was by sort of doing these uh, these elaborate stage shows with bands like Nine Inch Nails and then moving into other genres that perhaps were uh, younger genres in 97 he did sort of a, a jungle or drum and bass album with Earthling and, and so forth so by changing his musical Style and changing who he hung around with, he kept being relevant to very large groups of people.
3: Yeah, and you're talking about relevance to the fan base, but what about relevance to his fellow musicians? Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, a couple of bands, one that Nirvana uh, did, The Man Who Sold the World, uh, on yeah. their MTV uh, Unplugged special, and I also uh, posited that uh, we may not have Marilyn Manson if we had no David Bowie.
0: Right, I think you're right. Uh, you know, it's funny with, um, with the Nirvana track, uh, I remember reading about people, uh, listening to Bowie present The Man Who Sold the World live in concert around that same time and people saying, boy, I love it that Bowie's covered Nirvana. Right. <laughs> uh, right, you know, uh, I think it's simply the, the notion, you know, Bowie is, it was ubiquitous, is ubiquitous. He's everywhere. His music is everywhere. And it's almost impossible for uh, a musician of any level of seriousness to not encounter any of his music. And so it's, it's not surprising that a band like Nirvana or some of these other bands might pick up on that and sort of say, you know, this is the music that becomes a kind of fabric underneath the music that we're making ourselves. And so, you know, Nirvana pays tribute to that by playing, uh, by playing the song and, and covering that track. I think it's, it's, um, I think Bowie is sort of that underpinning. He's been around for so long, and he's been so influential that new bands can't help but uh, but um, uh, admire him.
2: Yeah, you know, and we, he had, in fact, just an album come out last week. Uh, how much of this, you know, when when we look at his body of work and, and the albums he's putting, putting up more recently, is this someone who was still... You know, as committed to his craft as he once was, as he st- as he was he cashing in on kind of the, his reputation still at that point. Where's where's that later work going to fit in?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think he was cashing in on on his reputation, and that's all. The last couple of albums, and I say that because in 2004, uh, I think 2003, he put out Reality, uh, which was uh, the last album before a large. A long break, and he uh, he on tour. He had some health problems, and then he sort of got out of the public eye completely. And for almost a ten-year span, he didn't do anything. Uh, he he performed. I think the last time he performed live was two thousand and six, uh, and then he showed up in two thousand thirteen with an album called The Next Day, and that was very critically acclaimed. Songs that pushed the envelope of of his previous work. It was new stuff, innovative material that you know lots of people sort of listened to it and said, "This is crazy. This is really neat." stuff uh and then the next uh i'm sorry then uh, blackstar comes out only a few days ago and i was telling uh, talking to my f- friends today and i said what what happened he's dead now the album came out on friday could they have held on to it in order to i mean that's the cynic right, right. holding on to it in order for him to die so that he'll make a lot of money i don't think that's what happened i think this is the perfect kind of statement from David Bowie at the end of his life. It's it's not just resting on his laurels. This is, you know, a relatively short album, 40 minutes, which is standard, but it's, you know, comprised of seven tracks that challenge you from start to finish. It is David Bowie, unmistakably, but it's challenging stuff. So I don't think he was resting on his laurels at all. I think he was certainly pushing the envelope about uh, what he can do and what kind of artistic expression uh, he wanted to make at the very end of his life. And I find that particularly fascinating today, especially yeah,
3: no kidding. What's his legacy then? I mean, besides all the music that, that he's left us, what sort of uh, imprint has he has he put on the way that that music is created and, and consumed?
0: Yeah, well, you you mentioned it earlier about uh, you know the the he provides for us a different model of masculinity. He challenges the uh, sort of gender associations that we have, the ways that we present ourselves. He also challenges what it is to be a celebrity, you know, to be out there in front of everybody, but also to be uh, quite private. Uh, so that's an interesting sort of tension to be in the spotlight, but purposefully out of it as well. I think he he is an example of that. And his music is everywhere. I just listened to two hours of, of David Bowie uh, music across his career and, and, it is something that I think will stick with us for quite a while and, and it should influence bands from all genres uh, quite into the future. I, th- I, I don't think we'll find an artist quite like David Bowie, uh, at least in the next little while. There are lots of artists we can point to that sort of seem like Bowie and, and sort of remind us of Bowie and are evocative of Bowie, but none have the same depth uh, that Bowie did. And, you know, Bowie was an artist, a visual artist. He was an actor. Um, he uh, was uh, even involved in fashion and, and things like that. So it's just very interesting. He's a figure that will be missed, I think, for quite a while.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, again, that book is called David Bowie in Darkness. Uh, Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate yep. it.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, Nicholas Greco is a professor at Providence University College uh, and, as mentioned, uh, wrote the book David Bowie and Darkness. Uh, we'll take a break here. We'll come back with some more thoughts on, on this uh, tragic news today. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. That's funny, Rogers. My nine-year-old son could tell you what song that is. He
3: would uh, beat me in that pub trivia category. Good thing he can't that is, get the uh, pub. It is Moon
2: Age Daydream that is uh, on the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack.
3: <laughs> your kid have that cassette tape? Oh, he did. Well, not the cassette
2: <laughs> tape. Well, wouldn't that be retro? Um, let me read this text. Uh, this one was was moving. It says, saw uh, Bowie in Commonwealth Stadium with the Tubes and Peter Gabriel in 85 mm. or so. One of the best shows I've ever seen to this day. He was unique, thought-provoking, and ever so talented. I was taken aback with news of his passing, even welled up a bit. Godspeed to him, and thanks are not enough for the hours of entertainment he left with us. Thank you for that, Darren.
3: Yeah, very, very well played indeed. Uh, David Bowie passed away yesterday uh, at the exact same time. He's got a new album out for you and I to enjoy.